From McKinsey's business building practice, Leap, I'm Andrew Roth, and welcome to The Venture, a series featuring conversations with legendary venture builders in Asia about how to design, launch, and scale new businesses. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice on how leaders can build successful businesses from scratch. Welcome to another episode of The Venture. And today I'm excited to have on the show Bernd Windvogel, who is the Chief Analytics Officer at True Digital Group. True Digital Group is a business unit launched by True Corporation and a subsidiary of major Thai conglomerate CP Group. CP Group operates eight business lines, including agriculture, retail, telco, e-commerce, property development, automotive, and has investments in 21 countries. True Digital Group seeks to capture new growth opportunities from digital analytics and related technologies and has built an ecosystem of platforms and solutions to meet changing needs. There's a lot to cover here, including the path to building and scaling an in-house analytics organization from scratch and some of the critical dynamics between a new business unit and its parent organization. Welcome, Bern. Great to have you on the show. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, so... You know, I thought we'd open up on this topic about how you got started with True Digital. And you had mentioned previously that your path, your personal journey started with a single conversation that you had with the chairman. Can you take us back to that, that conversation? So what we basically wanted to do was, outside of True, build a company that would build an analytics capability. Now, the project went well. But at some point, uh, we started seeing a risk that none of the True people were really wanting to take ownership of it. And then with ownership, I really mean full-time, giving up your job, doing this and leading this as a company. Right. So I raised in uh, one of our steerkos, which our chairman chaired as well, this concern. And I said, look, if nobody will, will take it over internally, you'll basically, yeah, we will, we will have the risk that we just make a slide deck that will never be used and the capability disappears when we left. So basically, then I got the reply, like, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? And then if you see that's the risk, why don't you come over and do it yourself? And that was one challenge. So basically, you heard the, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is. And it was never a part of your plan, it sounds like. I mean, you, you got this one sentence, this one challenge, and then it, it evolved from there. As you made that transition, what was your, your vision for the business? You know, and, and what, what I'm hearing so far is this was not just building an analytics capability. You were building an analytics business, correct? Exactly. So the, the idea was twofold, right? So it starts from the recognition of, as a telco operator, your data might be considered as an asset itself, right? You, you actually can make quite rich profiles out of, uh, out of customers. You see their location, their browsing. A full play telco service provider like True, where we have also television or True ID boxes, like to do OTT, having apps with viewing. You can actually monetize this without selling your data. We don't sell data, right? You wouldn't do that as a telco operator selling telephone numbers or something like that. But in your whole ecosystem, you can use it to those profiles and insights to do, for example, more targeted advertising and make a valid alternative for something like Google and Facebook. So it started from there, let's say, let's, let's, is there a way to see the data as an asset itself, and which can be monetized, which can regenerate a direct revenue stream on the market by providing services on top of it? And a second one was, as a bit of background, two is actually part of a larger conglomerate, CP Group, 
NCP Group is quite a large Asian uh, conglomerate. We have, for example, a large retail uh, unit with 10,000 branches in Thailand alone. So we were thinking as well, like if we have all those assets, wouldn't there then be a way to make unique synergies to basically within the constraint of, of what uh, what legal and regulation uh, directs within those constraints? Could we do something sharing data and, and making a competitive advantage? So th- those two were basically trying to monetize it, make a direct revenue stream, and in a creative way, maybe try to see how, as a as a conglomerate, you could leverage each other's data. That was the original idea of uh, of setting up this unit. Yes. And what, and what were some of the examples of you know you, you're mentioning that you're you're not selling data, you're offering services. What were what were some of the services on the on the business side? But, so one of our service lines is a location inside service, right? So we would basically look at patterns, how people move and behave and when they are where, and then basically give recommendations on, but you can almost use it for any where decision, any location decision, it could bring you inside. So to add some concrete cases, retailers use it here in Thailand to expand their branch network, where to build a new one. So actually any question, which uh, where you, a business question where you have an important location decision, Opening a branch, opening a railway station, things like that, can benefit from having the rich location inside as we have, you see. So, like I said, then we, we don't sell who was where at what point of time. We sell like, like how many people were there, how many of them moved from A to B. That's within, uh, within regulation. It's fully anonymized. I think that's a key point, right, is uh, with all the data privacy right now, it's not about sharing personal information, but the, the insights from aggregate, aggregate data uh, for, something, uh, for something that sounds like uh, where to put train stations. Then as you were building this business, you, know, you, you started bringing on customers and it sounded like it was very intentional to spin off this group versus to just have it within the, the, the core business? What were, what were some of the, the reasons for doing that? To answer that, ideally, you have to think a bit on the frame, how a corporate works versus, say, a, a, a decently funded startup, right? So if, if you run a startup as a founder and CEO and you got some found funding, you will typically end up in, a, in an operating model where you have the business plan, you find engagement of your board and funders on the direction, you have money on the bank from your funding. You have revenue targets to make sure you don't burn out fast, uh, too fast. And then as an entrepreneur, you start running, right? You would maybe update your board every month. But within the funding you had, you, you don't have to ask permission for, uh, for every little spend you do, for every little uh, recruitment you would do to onboard a new partner, to do a new product. Now, and that's the way it works, right? You have you have like both a lot of empowerment as a as an entrepreneur. If you stick to the business plan directionally and you listen to your board, if they give you other strategic direction, you're actually good. And you have the the drive of the market to make sure money comes in, right? Or you you will basically you will you will stop existing, right? Now, if you compare that with a corporate, and a corporate. Even if you would want to, right, setting up this kind of large liberty, say you would you would take somebody in a unit and you would say, here is, I don't know, like $15 million, great business plan, let's do it, update me every month. I mean, it sounds like that would be great, but on the other hand, like 
the, a corporate is so big, you cannot almost organize it without all those checks and balances. You need to have some kind of procurement system that looks, are, are you not, are you really taking the backslide or are you just taking your friends? Are you, are you using our money properly? You cannot easily just start saying, yeah, I'm recruiting somebody for a role and I'm paying him double like normal. The corporate, those things, those things start like, like conflicting with, with the system too much. And, and that adds up in terms of, of time, I would imagine, in terms of speed. Time and speed is one, and, and very, that's a very big one. I would guess as well, like frustration, right? You're the, first, the system frustrates you and, and kills energy. But like I said, like you, you, like if you want to change that in the core and say we, we should have less governance to, to become more agile, you will typically find yourself then half a year later having a lot of weird stuff, like a lot of fraud, a lot of things which are not aligned. So the, the bad ones would ruining it for the good ones and then you revolt back. So it's like the size, the size of such an organization almost prevents you to say, let's work as an enterprise, you get funding. Make sure you get money and, uh, and and we'll check in every month. It's 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 very utopic, but it doesn't. So so if you spin it off, you can actually do that. You can say you're like like in our case, our chairman of, of two corporation would then be also the chairman of the, the units. So in my case, I presented my 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 business plan, my case where I committed for, he released the funding. So he's almost like my funder then, and I would go there every three weeks to ask for direction and update him. But I wouldn't have to ask, can I hire this assistant or can I go with this vendor as long as I don't, uh, don't spend uh, the money uh, without getting revenue in. And that's the second, right? You, if you spin off as a corporate spin off and, and you build a capability, you have to monetize externally, you really have to chase revenue. You create a market mechanism. Right, but the analytic. I also lead the analytics team, for example, that serves through corporation, and that's also that's quite a challenge, right? That it's not that it's easier, but it's really hard to assess: are we really doing the right thing, right? As as like you have one client, which is the business itself, and the business has one vendor, which is you. So you kind of stuck to each other a bit, and you try to do the right thing, but it's hard to really know. Whereas, and your corporate spinoff, you will see, right? If nobody pays for your service, it doesn't fell in need or you're doing something wrong. So you were very intentional then on building analytics business, uh, having the sort of the autonomy by spinning off and having the market pressure to put yourself out there, right? Uh, and that that is what then enabled other things, it sounds like. Is it, once you have that pressure, there's nowhere to hide, then you have to uh, hire people, I would imagine, right? And you have to figure out how to grow and, and how to add value back in, into the core business. What was it like re recruiting talent? Spending off gives you indeed also a little bit of an edge in recruiting as, I mean, like especially in my business for like as a data scientist and engineering, but I would say in the larger technology businesses, top talent, it's very hard to convince them to say a sec like companies in the sector of banking or telecom or even government, right? It's very hard to get those people convinced as basically real top talent and, and technology is basically driven by passion, right? You don't become a good data scientist by, by if you're not interested in it. The really good ones are hyper, hyper passionate. 
and they see a risk of ending up in an environment which isn't actually not challenging them intellectually. Now, at least if you spin off, even if you stay under the same brand and umbrella, you are like, if I recruit, I'm substantially more confident to say, no, things, things will be faster. Like decision lines are shorter. We will give you the autonomy to deliver. We will give you the tools to be successful. It, it's, it's stronger to, be, to make that position. And uh, I have been very lucky here in Thailand to have found really, really good, uh, good talent, uh, very passionate people driving that business, yes. So pulling that hard to find talent, especially I would imagine in analytics, this, this spinoff helps in, uh, I guess, expressing the, the culture. You know, you are working is more independently than being associated to the core business. And was there an initial difficulty in the first few months where you had to come over, you know, overcome certain objections and then you got into a good pace or was it, were you finding success from day one on, on recruiting talent? Well, you, you have to ramp up, right? So as of day one, we actually focused a lot on, first and foremost, hiring the leadership, right? Like the head of analytics, the head of platform, the head of product. I see actually many companies trying to do it opposite, especially in data science. I mean, you are challenged to start a department with 30 data scientists, right? You will actually easily find junior data scientists. There's really many Many of them, every, every father would send his kids happily to a master in AI or whatever those things these days. So finding juniors is actually very easy on the market. Now finding seniors is difficult because 10 years ago, there was only a small group who kind of, who kind of found that place and, uh, and, and started uh, working in it and now, now being really proficient. Now, so I often advise that as well to people who set up an analytics team Spend the time to find your good leadership first, and they will hire your juniors. If you do it opposite, you, you basically end up very fast with a team and your boss will be happy and say, wow, we already have 20, but they will all be too junior. Too. So it, it would typically be very hard to maintain. Yeah, I mean, you, you had these, like a startup had all these sort of executional challenges or, or not obstacles, but I would say challenges around execution and urgency around execution. So you, so then you, you have uh, recruited your, your core team, including some senior, senior people, which is challenging. And then you have to go get more customers, right? Take us to, you know, you kind of explain one of the, one of the service lines around location services, but can we, can we go a little bit more into some of the verticals? I know you're now you serve and you've, you've scaled this business, but you serve lots of verticals. Can you share any other examples? If you think about uh, our products, as I said like a lot of it is, is covered around intelligence. We covered location intelligence. We also have products where we do digital intelligence. We would show, for example, trends and browsing behavior, app usage, link that to customer profiles. And then we have a targeted advertising product line, which basically uses our own channels to go in a very targeted way uh, doing customer conversion. Right? You can use our SMS system, for example, but also our banners on our streaming apps, the loyalty program to reach out to customers. And then if we really do that very targeted based on our algorithms and, and the data we have, we, of course, would charge a premium for that. I would imagine that that area must be getting uh, a lot more attention from some of your, your customers because, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, this crackdown on, on privacy, you know, even, even the browsers are, are cracking down on, on tracking third-party cookies. And so there's this shift towards, you know, 
optimizing first party data and, and second party data through, through partnerships uh, where it's all opt in and very above board and transparent to the, uh, the end consumer. Have you been seeing any sort of lift in, in, in interest in either data partnerships or you know, this, the sort of opt in customer targeting? It's double. There is a there is an extreme deep interest to share data, and especially look think about it as follows: What what is Google, right? You would say search, but then it's also payment, so they touch banking, and then it's e-commerce, so they touch retail, right? They do communication systems, right? Like like streaming and stuff like that, so they become a, a telco. And if you have Facebook, is the same. They're actually a bank, a telco, and a retailer. All big digital companies try to converge to three. And the thing is, they can share data amongst each other's unit, right? Within legal constraint, but they can. They can say like, hey, this person is looking for a credit card online and I happen to have a wallet, so I might offer a credit card. They do those things. Now, as incumbents, you're kind of screwed if you cannot. You have a telco, you have a bank, and you have a retailer. So if you, if you cannot share the data over and above all the other challenges you might have of running an operations, for example, physical operations versus a digital, not being able to share this data is uh, like it's almost like if you don't do it, you 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 will almost die. But <laughs> this will be such a competitive disadvantage, and this is actually well understood in the executive suite of banks, telcos, and retailers. They kind of realize the power of uh, of doing that. Now, it's very hard to get there because indeed there are legal ways to do that. There are platforms that allow to anonymize in such a way that, that it's, it's legal, even under the strictest uh, interpretation of GDPR. But then once you go to the, even if you have top-down support, once you start going to the operational level, there is a lot of fear, which is normal. I would, I would be worried if somebody would knock uh, our door and uh, somebody would just say, here is my data, <laughs> good luck. So there were, but like the, the resistance of the, of the risk uh, taking a so big that actually de facto it's very hard to make traction on it. So I hope, uh, like, luckily then at least the minds are uh, are open on on a more senior level, as you say as well. As first, like third party data gets more and more scrutinized and locked down. I think the way ahead will be will be that incumbents come together and share data in a legal way. And I think it's beyond beyond just legal, right? Because that's sort of the the starting point. But but the the customer experience, you know, where they uh, it's very transparent, you know, how their data might be might be shared, you know, whether it's from first party or from you know, even if it's aggregate data that that's being shared. I mean, I think this will continue to evolve, and it's it's fascinating. It sounds like you're um, you're at the forefront of it, which is great. I, I guess what I'm hearing is now that you're you're building this business, you're growing it. This was the path to capability building for not just your business, but for the core business. And now what it sounds like for, for Thailand in general. So this market pressure, as you described, is what put the heat on to get good at this. And then maybe can you share a little bit about how now that has translated the success in these different verticals that you're in, uh, how that's translated into helping the core business and helping Thailand through the True Academy. Maybe to give a bit of background on this as well, when we set up this business, it was actually designed not to serve back True Corporation. Right? True Corporation back then had its own data science team 
and we did really deliberately said, let's go, let's go outside, let's do the group, let's do external. As it's, I said a bit in the beginning, it's a bit a different animal, right? After a while, you start like after a year in, you start building those capabilities, like I said, like location services and advertising, and then you see and through corp that through corporation itself, they would actually benefit from using those. They have to make a lot of location decisions, right? Where to open a branch, where to uh, invest in a base station and uh, and internet ports. So then you 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 kind of start, and that's just one example, right? You start kind of start realizing I have a certain capability here, which I start to monetize and start to get good traction. Often tension emerge between the the mothership, so to say, and the spinoffs. It's a bit like, and this is not any different here. It's a bit normal, right? As the spinoffs get seem to get a bit of better treatment and, and way more agility, and and the core is like stuck. And you know? so it's it's normal uh, normal to to create this dynamic. But I think for us, it got the right dynamic. We we managed it well in the sense that in a very natural way, we started saying we have to do something back. We have to bring our location services to through and let them make better decisions and they monetize it. Well, and, and I guess that's that's a good indicator of product market fit if the mothership is asking to become a customer, essentially. Right, exactly, exactly, right? And then you can offer basically a team which has set, like which really hardened by market reality, which is harder to build within an incumbent, right? Team which is hardened by market reality, a team that have been Recruited in a, in a way that you as said in the beginning, right, where we were able to attract more talents. So actually, over and above building a, a revenue generating unit, you also actually built almost as a side product, right? So a very, very strong capability, which you can then bring back again to, uh, to headquarters and, and make additional impact there. So you, ha- you have the forcing mechanism originally to build the capability by, by putting yourself into the market. Then you have to prove yourself by serving the core business uh, in an in a authentic way, not just sort of leveraging you as a resource. They, they need you to help solve similar problems uh, out there in the market. And then you have this other forcing mechanism around uh, True Academy, because it's, that sounds like it's even at, at another dimension of where you're keeping yourself at, at the forefront of this? How, how does that work? How does True Academy work? Actually, it works uh, similarly in a different business line. But uh, so True Digital Academy is, a, is, a, is an academy for uh, focused on B2B, for upskilling and, and reskilling your people. So you can send teams there and, and they can do uh, courses in data science, digital marketing, product development, coding. Now, here it's a bit similar as well. We brought this to like, like many corporates would solve this as let's set up an internal training team or let's outsource this and get somebody in and then you have a partner. We basically there as well, we decided to spin it off, build it, monetize it by looking for external clients whilst then as well, of course, like using it to upscale too. Uh, so far, I think we have been like in analytics, I have the clearest view on it. We have trained 500 people towards like be some kind of mini data scientist, we call data champion, being able to do some stuff and then potentially grow. But as I said, like here you have a bit the same, like in the same time, uh, the head of the digital academy has to go to the market and look for clients and face the market reality and scrutiny, have to adjust their program, have to become more edgy. So, so it's actually the same driving mechanism as you, you, you build, you, you spin off your capability. You have to build internally. 
and and the market basically will will put will pressure cook it almost right will put the pressure on it to make it really good and then you can then it you can bring it back as we did with the analytics business and the digital academy so now we've heard about sort of the the journey to build uh, the the analytics business how it's then reached back into the core business and even spun off to to other things like the academy what about growth you know especially right now uh, where we're at with with covid-19 mm. so the thing is Basically, if you think about the uh, the the original idea of setting up a startup outside a spin-off, uh, out of a, outside of the corporate, it's actually largely driven by the problem of scale, right? Like like I said, like you 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 can just not set up agile decisioning processes you would want to or recruiting processes you would want to within such a large organization. So. It's basically like the, the spin-off is, is set up to solve a certain problem of scale, which makes it a bit different from, 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 from a real startup in the sense for a real startup, growth is number one. You can like it's the primary objective. You you have to find your way to break even to profitable self-funding. There's no other choice. Nobody would argue, like, aren't we getting too big, right? Now for a um, a corporate spin-off, it's a, it's a fine balancing act. Of course, growth is important. Right? You have to go forward. It's there. But think about it. If you, if you become then too big, too fast again, you will find yourself in the situation where you wanted to run away from. Right. So you're saying growth is important where you're at, just like a startup. But uh, there are other nuances uh, where you're sitting in terms of you know making sure you don't uh, lose the culture or start operating in... Uh, as like a, a major, uh, large incumbent. company like Google doesn't operate these days anymore like 20 years ago, for sure, right? But there's no other way. You cannot say, let's let's take this 100,000 FT organization and do it back in the good old days like we were too. So so that's what I mean with... Uh, with there's nothing wrong, of course, with, with growing your spinoff into something bigger. But then indeed it becomes a different story. You would say, I'm going to make basically as well a second corporate organization, which would be great. Your shareholder would be very happy. But then you're solving another thing, right? So what we try to solve was indeed, let's spin off something as an analytics unit, which builds a capability, which is hardened and can be brought back. If you grow that into a thousand FTE organization, you'll become the same. Tell me a little bit more of that, you know, I mean, because it sounds like you're growing, you're building different services across different verticals. So have you felt you've had to like pull back in certain areas on growth, whether it be like hiring people or are you being more proactive about maintaining sort of that, that scrappy culture of a, of a spinoff? But I said that it's a balancing act, right? You don't want to, you don't want to break growth, but you kind of feel, of course, like, I mean, I, I started it from, uh, from scratch three years ago and now we're 150. I'd like you see the story as any startup or company, the bigger you become, the more governance you need, right? I also have to answer, I cannot just say to my reports, for example, oh yeah, just go ahead and hire whoever we need and we figure it out. You, you have to put governance in it, right? And then you indeed feel like if you would be a normal startup, you would just keep on running. You would be happy. You wouldn't say like, hey, we're less, uh, less agile than in the beginning. You would go to your second phase of growth and you would become a bit more organized, structured. And make sure you can uh, you can support the scale. <laughs> you wouldn't go to your board and say that was it, right? 
That is the whole purpose and the engine. But that could become a secondary one at some point. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, you're saying it's an advantage uh, being a, the spinoff because a, 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 a VC-backed startup has just the daily pressure of the cash flow and the burn, right? Uh, whereas what I'm hearing you saying is you you might get to a point of growth, but you, you might have the luxury to, to um, you know, kind of fix things and, and recalibrate as you go along without as much as the the pressure to, you know, 10x your valuation, uh, you know, in a typical VC-backed startup. Yeah, you end up a bit, to be honest as well, I never saw a corporate uh, spinoff with the kind of same, exactly the same kind of dynamism you would find in a real startup. I, I Like you end up typically a bit in between, like you're way more agile than a corporate substantially. I think the main difference is like a real startup has an owner there, right? Who put his money on the table who is one of you and, and doesn't sleep because the salaries need to be paid. Right? The pressure, the pressure, and that, that can be a good thing, right? The pressure, the drive, the focus towards revenue is basically the, like everybody is aligned and focused on the same problem. Like in a corporate startup, you will have this less so. I mean, I would like, like it's, it's not, it's not, you, you cannot play. You put your own money in it and you cannot sleep because the money will run out. I know I'm part of a corporate and my people will get paid. Right. So, so you, you, I never saw like, it's probably solvable, but I never saw somebody who could really fully mimic this, this fear. So you're right. Like, because I would make it also a bit more nuanced as, as sometimes an advantage. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's an advantage that you say, okay, I take two months and clean up my organization and then grow further. Now, on the other hand, it might lose you the disadvantages. It might make you lose focus that you have this and like this, this luxury. Well, on that note, um, why don't we round off this conversation with a uh, uh, lightning round, a short burst of questions, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up from there. Okay, who would you want on your board, Elon Musk or Jack Ma? Uh, Elon Musk. Uh, in a world, in a world without true, what startup or company would you want to work for? A nonprofit uh, organization. Interesting. Okay, maybe we'll have to have another conversation to, to dive into that. Yeah, maybe <laughs> at some point you 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 feel as well in analytics, you might have to do something else, showing banners all the time. <laughs> Describe your personal startup power in a few words. Okay, I think energetic uh, drive. The, the will to make something like creative and in that sense, like really having the passion to, to build, build the product and push it out. Uh, describe your team's culture in one word. Trust. And what are, what do you feel are some of the biggest trends that are coming in analytics post COVID? But we, we touched already a bit on data sharing, I think as well, more specifically also like open data, open data for government, for example where aggregated data sets, be it private or government, would become available, cleaned, curated on a cloud, and then people can basically use it to solve problems like, I don't know, like traffic jam, if you have traffic data, right? So, so more open APIs and, and SDKs around open data. Exactly, around data assets, which are now a bit hidden in, the, <laughs> in, in, in many places, yeah. Well, thanks for that. I mean, um, it's been a it's been a quick conversation, but a great one. I, I love what you said about um, you know data as an asset. You know, so moving beyond just the traditional uh, telco services and and the path to this capability building by you know building a business in the market as the forcing mechanism. Right? I don't I don't think people talk about that enough. And on growth, 
right? Everyone's obsessed with growth, product market fit, uh, and there are nuances for the, the the corporate startup. And I agree, it's not as some, it's not as black and white that it's just always an advantage or always a disadvantage. It, it changes as as uh, scenarios change. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Now comes a segment where we invite founders and experts from McKinsey to provide more context and to draw practical insights. And again, I'm joined by my colleague, Thomas Laboka from McKinsey's business building practice, Leap. Thomas, we, we often talk to CEOs about how they can leverage their quote unquote unfair advantages when they, when they look at building new businesses. You know, what, what, what from this conversation struck you about that? That's a good one. And we always see the success stories when, when the incumbents are successful with building their businesses, the moment they're able to understand how to tap into those unfair advantages well. Um, and in, in Burns' example, it was the monetization of data that really stood out. They figure out how to uh, anonymize the data and draw the insight and then um, actually monetize it uh, on the market. It was something that helped them internally, and they were able to drive it back home to, to, the, to the mothership, to the CP. Um, and that's, I think, something which really, really helped them to succeed, right? You know, there's been a lot of talk, I would say, in the last, you know, five, eight years about the promise of data monetization. And what's interesting about their approach is they used launching a new business in the area of analytics and data as the forcing mechanism to get really good at it, you know, to prove themselves in the market and then to uh, help impact the capabilities of, of the core business. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to be a, a growing trend around the decision to spin off the venture build as, as a really a, a independent entity from the, the core business. And, and uh, one of those reasons being around talent and recruiting, Byrne was mentioning that in order to attract the top data scientists and uh, you know, new talent, they wanted to demonstrate there's a new culture and maintaining that culture through growth. And that, that last topic of growth came up, you know, some of the some of the differences between the two. In a startup, you just want to go, go, go and grow, grow, grow. <laughs> and on the spine of that, you you raise one round, second round, third round, and with that you increase valuation and just keep going. Um, in the case of of the um, uh, in, in case of Byrne, it was quite visible that he's trying to strike the balance between the the growth, and he went from zero to 150 people, and then the right calibration for the right metrics, right? So he has accountability to build actual a real business. Um, he has a, um, accountability for uh, PNL, and and he has to sync that with uh, with uh, the mother company. So it, it, it seems to be a very interesting balance that he's trying to strike. The startup has to grow, as, as you say, and they're, they're so focused on increasing their valuation for that next round of funding and, and market capitalization, whereas the incumbent has a, a, a different uh, metric. They, of course, have to demonstrate growth, but often have a little bit more P&L pressure to the mothership, right? So they're not trying to prove that they're worth you know, the next, you know, billion or $2 billion startup type valuation, they have to show that they can get to profitability and, and to growth and, and, and meaningful impact. It's a different game altogether for the, uh, for the incumbent. And in a sense, creating a real value than just, uh, you know, blown up value, which is something that can deflate very easy when the economy contracts or when the bubble bursts, right? Something that we probably going to see very soon. I agree. I agree. I think when, when is the, uh, when is uh, the musical chairs going to stop on these uh, on these valuations for startups? Thomas, as always, thanks for the recap and look forward to the next one.
You have been listening to The Venture with me, Andrew Roth. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode next month.